and welcome to our rapid fire multi-specialty panel discussion. Um, again, I'm John Cooper. I'm glad to be joining you again. Uh, I am one of three uh, panelists and I'm joined by uh, two uh, very esteemed colleagues, um, Dr. Alan Gabriel uh, from Vancouver, Washington and Dr. Vedra Augustine from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and we're each gonna take a, a few minutes and go through our own uh, surgical specialties uh, and indications and roles for uh, use of incisional negative pressure uh, within our own fields. Um, again, as disclosures, we are all uh, three uh, consultants with 3M uh, Healthcare's medical division, uh, and the remainder of our disclosures are listed as, as, uh, as shown on the screen. The learning objectives for this session are to examine the patient-related and perioperative-related risk factors for developing complications uh, in orthopedic procedures, uh, and to explore the cases and outcomes on the use of closed incision negative pressure therapy uh, to reduce post-operative complications and the at-risk patients uh, in our population who are undergoing these procedures. So um, I I'm going to start uh, in my field of orthopedic surgery. Again, I'm a, a orthopedic uh, hip and knee reconstruction surgeon. Uh, so I perform uh, most of what I do is hip and knee replacements uh, and revisions uh, of hip and knee replacements. And despite you know what uh, um, I, I think of as a really good residency training, a really good fellowship training, and, and years of experience in this field, um, I still am bothered by problematic incisions that happen in some patients. And, and these are examples, uh, all the pictures I'm gonna show are my own patients. Um, you know, I, I still have patients who get wound complications, who have wound breakdown. Uh, these are some total hip examples. Uh, here are a couple of my revision total hips with wound breakdown, wound necrosis, uh, wound dehiscence at the edges. Um, some primary total knee patients uh, with um, uh, returning to the operating room for wound breakdown, uh, wound dehiscence, uh, uh, superficial surgical site infection. And revision knee uh, replacement is probably the most common place where I have wound complications. Um, again, you can see uh, just how quickly this wound can break down in, in a matter of a couple of weeks. So when I look, take a step back and examine my patients who are having these kinds of wound complications, um, you know, most of these are not happening in healthy, active patients with no risk factors. Uh, and in fact, most of them are happening in patients who don't typically have one risk factor, but have two or three or four risk factors that stack on top of each other. And our literature in orthopedics and, and all of the surgical specialties are full of studies that try to examine risk and try to attribute um, risk to different medical conditions. This slide uh, gives a number of those examples, uh, but the kinds of medical conditions that can lead to uh, or compromise wound healing um, is really quite long. Uh, so elderly patients, uh, patients who've had a history of wound infection, uh, those with um, uh, multi-system uh, um, uh, organ disease, vascular disease, um, uh, hypoalbuminemia, uh, uh, systemic infection, uh, some of the more common things like diabetes, obesity, smoking, uh, history of radiation, uh, various forms of immunosuppression from medications or medical conditions, uh, anemia, malnutrition, these are all things that, that can compromise wound healing and lead to an increased risk of infection. So how do we approach this uh, in orthopedic surgery? Um, I, I think there uh, you, you'll find an institution by institution difference um, it, with regard to the specifics, but the, the general themes tend to be the same. Um, number one, we uh, I'll go through my institution's approach to this. Um, I, I think we start by trying to identify the patient's risk factors and trying to assign some sort of, of understanding of how, how big those risk factors are. Um, at Columbia, we have uh, designed a risk calculator that pulls from some of the published literature. Um, I think this study published in 2018 in JBJS is, is probably uh, the strongest or one of the strongest uh, uh, predictors of what kinds of patients will get a joint infection uh, after hip and knee uh, reconstruction surgery. Um, you know, we, we, the way I used to counsel patients uh, about risk of infection is, you know, your risk of getting an infection after joint replacement is, is hopefully less than 1% in the first year, but, you know, can rise to one or 2%, um, you know, over the first few years after surgery. And if you look at averages, that's true. But if you look on an individual patient level, that's far from true. 
Um, and this study did a, a good job of, of showing that. Um, so for, for very healthy patients uh, with really no risk factors, the risk of an infection can be as low as 0.3%. And it can climb to almost 20% depending on risk factors, uh, the kinds of surgeries they've had before, uh, body mass index, uh, medications. And when you start stacking these risk factors on top of each other, you can really start to understand uh, how impactful these things can be. Um, and so now when I counsel patients about risks of infection, I'm able to, to plug in their own individual uh, risks and comorbidities, and I'm able to give them a number and, and say, well, your risk of infection is, uh, you know, ranges between two and 2.4% uh, for the kind of procedure we're trying to do, uh, as one example. The risk of infection, I think, closely correlates with the risk of a wound complication. However, there are patients who can get non-infectious wound complications from poor healing. Uh, and, and these tend to be superficial and don't lead to infection. Um, and, and that's one thing I think that incisional negative pressure therapies is, is, is really good at addressing. And uh, so it, it's a little bit of a different question in my mind, uh, a patient's own individual risk of an infection uh, versus what kind of patients would benefit from technology like uh, uh, closed incision negative pressure therapy. So we, uh, at, at my institution, we went back and, and retrospectively looked at a large uh, cohort of, of hundreds of patients who had uh, elective surgery with us and who went on to either heal uneventfully or develop these kinds of superficial wound complications that you see. And we were able to identify the um, most common risk factors that predisposed to delayed wound healing, to wound breakdown. And we found in our hands, uh, about 11% of patients had these kinds of superficial wound complications um, a small number of those needed reoperation, but most didn't, most healed uneventfully. And what we found were the risk factors uh, that most strongly correlated were BMI, diabetes, and previous surgery. But we were able to design from this data uh, a risk stratification algorithm for, for delayed wound healing and wound complications. And we were able to, to make this a weighted risk stratification algorithm where we could look at patients who were um, you know, quite thin or malnourished, uh, those who were obese or morbidly obese, uh, those who had diabetes, those who were immunodeficient, uh, uh, which we defined as either medications or medical conditions that would cause this. Those who were actively smoking or using nicotine, uh, those who needed more aggressive anticoagulation than our standard of care, and those who'd had prior open surgery uh, on that ipsilateral joint. And what we found is that that risk um, uh, stratification score was equal to or greater than two, uh, the risk of wound complications really started to climb quite a bit. And so we applied, I applied this prospectively starting in 2017, and I, I ran this prospective uh, risk stratification for a, almost a year and a half. And uh, over that time was able to risk stratify 323 elective primary total joints uh, into a low risk uh, category, which was about two thirds of my patients and into a higher risk category, which was about one third of my patients. Um, I used this to decide who was going to get kind of a standard of care dressing or who was going to get um, the more advanced closed incision negative pressure therapy. And when I, when I use this risk stratification uh, scoring, um, I looked at the incisional complication rates and found that they were equivalent between the groups. So a lower risk cohort with a standard of care dressing and a higher risk cohort with a closed incision negative pressure dressing had statistically equivalent rates of wound complications in the six to 7% range. So we were able to look back historically and, and compare our uh, current data with the historical cohort. And what we found was historically our rate of wound complications in our entire study population was 12%. But when we began to risk stratify into closed incision negative pressure therapy for the higher risk patients, we were able to improve our overall um, rate of wound complications down, down to below 7%. And you know, studies like this um, can be complicated because other things can change over time. And so it's hard to examine populations in, you know, that are separated by a few different years and, and, and make accurate comparisons. So we went back and we looked specifically at the low risk patients from that initial cohort. And what we found is that the low risk patients where we didn't, um, you know, where we didn't do anything different with the standard of care dressings, their rates of incisional complications didn't really change over time. You can see there's a slight improvement in incisional complication rates, but, but one that was statistically not significant, uh, improved from 8% down to 6%. Um, so it's certainly a trend. The, the big difference came from the high-risk group. Um, 
And our high-risk group historically had a 26% rate of wound complications. And as um, you know, after we started risk stratifying and using a negative pressure dressing in this cohort, we were able to significantly reduce the rate of incisional complications down to 7%. And this was the responsible for the overall improvement in, uh, in complications across the cohort. It's studies like this and, and, and others that were published throughout uh, the orthopedic trauma and arthroplasty literature that led the international consensus on orthopedic infection to uh, come up with a consensus statement that talked about incisional VAC therapy um, appears to be a, a, a reasonable or good option for improved wound healing and decreasing the infection rate in orthopedic patients who are at risk for such complications. Or other words, in high-risk patients or higher-risk patients, using closed incision negative th pressure therapy uh, is, a, is a reasonable or good option. And they cited a moderate level of evidence with this in 2019, um, with 85% of their delegates agreeing uh, which uh, translated into a supermajority or a strong consensus statement about uh, prophylactic uh, closed incision negative pressure therapy in high-risk patients. So how do I use this in my practice now? Um, I, I have a few different indications for this. Number one, I use it in my high-risk primary cases. I talked about the risk stratification algorithm that we designed. This is one example. This is a 43-year-old lady who needed a total hip uh, because of avascular necrosis. She has a number of risk factors, of significant risk factors for infection and for delayed wound healing. She has lupus on chronic high-dose steroids, so she's immunocompromised, takes Plaquenil, uh, has well-controlled diabetes, has a BMI of 51.2 uh, with an overhanging panis, and uh, she needed a total hip. She couldn't work anymore and um, was an employee in our hospital. So went to surgery and had a total hip replacement. Um, if you risk stratifier, clearly she meets, the, she meets our indications for negative pressure therapy. Um, I, I did an uneventful uh, total hip from, from a, a surgery perspective. The concern for her is her incision and healing and, and risks of infection. And you can see that with that negative pressure therapy dressing on there for five days, you know, a really nicely healed incision at five days when this comes off. Um, a little bit of puckering up top, but had we not used this, this is the area where we often see wound breakdown, wound dehiscence. Um, you know, that could be up to five to 10 millimeters wide uh, in that area. Uh, revision surgery, uh, revision hip and knee surgery is an area where I use this uh, quite frequently and, and I would say almost all the time. Um, we covered some of the studies about uh, revision surgery earlier. Um, this uh, is a good example of a case where I find this really useful. Uh, this is a 52-year-old gentleman who came to me uh, with a chronically infected uh, knee replacement. Uh, he'd had this knee replacement done about a year before I met him. Uh, it had gotten almost immediately infected. Um, he had five subsequent surgeries over a 12 month period before I met him to try to control this infection, none of which were successful. He presented to me with a wound dehiscence, uh, exposed patella tendon over the front of his knee, uh, draining staphylococcus. Um, I took him to the operating room uh, within a few days of meeting him, took out the infected revision knee replacement that was in there. Uh, he'd already undergone a failed two-stage exchange. Now, I took out that revision knee replacement, replaced it with a static spacer. Um, I was just able to, to barely get that incision um, under a fair bit of tension closed. Uh, and I would say you know, probably not the most ideal thing to close incisions under tension, but because we were going to immobilize this joint, with a static spacer. And because I had the ability to use closed incision negative pressure therapy, I, I, I've gained confidence in the situation about closing wounds under tension, um, at least at the first of two stages like this. So um, in addition to, to taking out his uh, infected uh, hardware, uh, doing a thorough debridement of the, of the tissues, um, we consulted infectious disease, uh, started him on IV antibiotics, uh, made in partial weight bearing and use this closed incision negative pressure therapy device um, uh, uh, after surgery. Um, I used it for longer than the on-label indication. I used this, you know, in, in this patient in, in my practice for two weeks, um, which is certainly longer than the, the, the seven days of continuous on-label uh, approved use for this. Um, you can see what the incision looked like at two weeks when I took it out. Um, a little, uh, wound breakdown distally at that area where his tendon was exposed, uh, but a good bed of, of uh, uh, healing granulation tissue underneath. By four weeks, this had scabbed over. 
by eight weeks, uh, this had fully healed. I took it back to the operating room at 10 weeks with a well-healed incision. This area was very, very tight at this point. Um, I, I performed a revision total knee replacement with this hinged mechanism. At this point, I, I did a rotational um, gastroc flap with a split the skin graft on top, uh, working with one of my uh, microvascular colleagues um, to cover this soft tissue defect. Um, I used a, a closed incision negative pressure therapy device right on top of the incision and the, um, the rotational flap and skin graft. I left it on uh, for six days, took it off. You can see what the incision looked like along with the muscle flap at six days, no signs of wound breakdown. Uh, here he is six weeks and 10 weeks post-op with a beautifully healed incision and a beautifully incorporated skin graft. At six weeks post-operatively, had good function of his knee, great motion, great power of his extensor mechanism. This is another revision case, a very typical kind of case where I find negative pressure therapy very helpful. 65-year-old lady, obese, multiple prior surgeries, came to me with a chronic uh, years-old uh, pseudomonas infection uh, with infected hardware, infected hip arthroplasty, a lack of an abductor mechanism. I performed a, a posterior approach, uh, explantation of her hardware, uh, placement of an articulating antibiotic spacer, and I used negative pressure therapy on her for seven days. Uh, you can see the uh, hip after explantation of the hardware, removal of the poster column plates, um, placement of the high dose antibiotic uh, articulating spacer. Um, this is the kind of patient, uh, chronic infection for years with obesity, poor nutrition, that when you cut into the tissues to, to start this case, the tissues just weep this serous thin fluid. And these are the patients that I've had great difficulty healing. Um, so the introduction of this technology and this kind of patient population has, has really been a game changer for me. Um, you can see what the dressing looks like when it's on. Here she is at seven days, after seven days of continuous negative pressure therapy, no drainage from the incision, a well-healed incision that looks about two to three weeks old uh, by, by my eye uh, at seven days. I took her back for reimplantation at nine weeks. Despite a well-healed incision and despite inflammatory markers coming down, there was still persistent evidence, a positive frozen section of, of infection inside of her hip joint. So I changed her articulating spacer for a static spacer a secondary debridement, another high dose uh, antibiotic spacer, another uh, Provena, again for seven more days. Here's her incision um, after two surgeries from me um, in a couple of months. And she's ready to head back to the operating room uh, for her uh, uh, second attempt at reimplantation, third overall surgery from me. Uh, at this point, she cleared her infection, uh, got a new constrained hip replacement. Uh, surgery was uneventful, healing was uneventful. And of course, uh, in this patient, after having gone through all this, uh, certainly using another closed incision negative th pressure therapy device uh, is advisable. My third indication for negative pressure therapy, uh, in addition to the high-risk primaries, in addition to almost all of my revision cases, uh, is certain trauma cases. Um, the orthopedic literature is, is filled with a uh, you know, an abundance of literature now in orthopedic trauma surgery uh, about how helpful this can be uh, when managing acetabular fractures, when managing uh, fractures around the knee, around the ankle, around the heel, um, in areas that have lots of soft tissue swelling, uh, and then you add a surgery right on top of that, um, it can be really traumatic to the soft tissues. Um, this is a gentleman that I met, uh, first patient all, all day that I presented who's actually healthy uh, with no medical comorbidities uh, other than obesity. Um, he um, presented to me with a uh, Vancouver B2 periprosthetic femur fracture. Uh, you can see the comminution in the segmental component to this fracture. Um, I took him to the operating room, uh, revised his hip to this construct, uh, getting fixation distal to the fracture and wrapping the fracture fragments around the revision stem. Surgery went quite well. Uh, long incision, long surgery, lots of blood loss for this kind of surgery. Uh, and really swollen soft tissues. Often these cases have a, have a difficult time closing the fascia back over the muscles in the thigh. Uh, and so subsequently, there's typically a lot of drainage that happens from these, and the incisions can have a hard time healing. In our literature, these kinds of incisions have an inf uh, infection rate, as we talked about earlier, 
of somewhere between 16 and 26%. So uh, for me, a very good indication for closed incision negative pressure therapy, you can see where his incision is um, basically from his sacrum around his lateral hip and down the front of his thigh, almost all the way down to his knee. So a good indication here for a customizable 90 centimeter long uh, closed incision negative pressure therapy dressing. Healed uneventfully, healed his fracture and uh, is doing quite well uh, years later. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Alan Gabriel uh, to talk about his experience and, and indication for using this in, um, uh, in his practice. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. That was uh, very interesting and some amazing cases. Uh, we're gonna uh, change now to plastic surgery. And as I had mentioned uh, earlier today, is really we wanna start thinking about soft tissue management with the incisions. There's the more to the incision than just the incision alone. And we wanna be thinking about soft tissue that's surrounding the incision. Because anytime we're dealing with any wounds, whether it's an incision or an open wound, we have some certain goals for treatment. We want to make sure we want to create an environment that's conducive to normal and timely healing. We have to remember that overall analysis, patient selection is key and making sure that we want to optimize the patients in order for them to have a successful outcome. So looking at the comorbidities while we're analyzing the defect is extremely crucial. We want to be looking in at the intrinsic factors, see if can we improve any of these factors that are listed here uh, with medications, vitamins, or what else can we be doing to improve the healing cycle? What can we be doing with the extrinsic factors that the patients are exposed to? Can any of this be limited? Can we be giving anything else to improve or minimize some of the deleterious effects that's seen with these ex extrinsic factors that are present. Lastly, let's not forget the hydrogenic factors, any type of mechanical repeated trauma, stress, their living conditions, and as well as their discharge planning. How is this all gonna work? How, what are we doing best to protect the incision? And the crucial part is blood flow to the areas, understanding the vascular territories and angiosomes of the body as we are working towards managing an incision or managing a wound is also important. So putting this all together, analyzing the patient while analyzing the wound, our goal is to replace like with like. Here we turn to reconstructive ladder and some of you have heard this numerous times and we've been talking about this for many years and really what we've learned is that some of the high tech healing that's available to us and particularly the negative pressure device. What negative pressure has really done is improve some of the outcomes that are listed here. If a patient requires a free flap, we may actually downgrade them to a local tissue transfer and also take advantage of some of the other high-tech healing such as dermal substitute and epidermal substitute that are available to us to be able to achieve and replace like tissue with like. For today's topic of incisional management, you've seen this slide, how does this fit in my practice? Once again, incisions at risk for surgical complications come really present in two categories. Those are that are risk for soroma formation and those are that are risk for dehiscences. And maybe these some go hand in hand, both can be present. So improving the outcome for these particular patients is gonna be important. Let's take you through a case of a 39 year old with breast cancer who desires to have mastectomy and reconstruction. You may say, this patient's BMI 62, why are you even gonna approach this? Where her, her A1C is 5.6, so she doesn't even have uh, diabetes, but any patient with BMI greater than 30, I routinely check their A1C because sometimes you'll be surprised that you'll be the first to diagnose uh, their type two diabetes. So the technique that's planned, would we even offer reconstruction? If the patient has no other comorbidities, yes, we would offer reconstruction. This is the patient in the operating room. 
And this is the patient following her reconstruction with expanders, and this is her with implants. Successful outcome with a, with a patient that is very complex, and we did utilize the soft tissue management in this particular case. There's a 69-year-old female with a sternal wound infection following a cabbage. This sternum is completely debrided. Uh, patient does have type 2 diabetes, her BMI is 46, and patient is on dialysis. So a uh, very complex case. And the candidacy of this patient, we really have to be able to achieve some sort of a closure in this patient. So it's, we can't choose uh, these patients, unfortunately, not to operate on them at least. We have to move forward with some sort of a plan. So in, installation was utilized with saline irrigation once, second soak time, every two hours to cleanse the, uh, the wound and prepare for reconstruction. This is the patient at, in the operating room, you can see there's no sternum. You're looking directly into the chest cavity. And this is the patient following the reconstruction with a rectus flap that is present and that's their large donor site that you're seeing. When we're looking at a case like this, patient underwent final closure of the skin as well soft tissue management of both the chest as well as the donor site were important. At seven days, we removed and replaced. If, once again, if I can go longer and if the patient, whether they're in the hospital or they have access to a home device that can be connected to these dressings, then I will utilize it. And this is the patient at two weeks following the second dressing change. And this is when we left the dressing uh, open and the patient went on successfully heal and be discharged home. So there's what we call is really a state of art in soft tissue reconstruction because we start with decontamination. We prepare the wound followed by dermal replacement, epidermal replacement, and maybe even a uh, flap rotation which covers both subcube dermal and epidermal areas for final closure. The important thing here is recognize that decontamination is the first step and preparation is the second step. While we're preparing, while we're optimizing the patient, we're also improving at least what we believe is the wound itself with the cleansing that is present in these cases. Much like before, we discussed that we've, incision management has really undergone an evolution. Gauze is really not protective over incisions in terms of bacterial burden. Uh, there's a benchtop study that was done that would require, I, I believe it was, whether it's 44 or 48 layers of gauze to have any protection against uh, bacterial translocation from the surface into the wound into the wound. So 48 layers of gauze versus just a sterilely placed dressing that's activated to 125 mils of mercury. As you see from tape to glue mesh down to incision management and lastly think about soft tissue management because this is the critical aspect of optimizing our patients. As we're thinking about soft tissue management we're also continuing to optimize these patients. We're not stopping the additional adjuncts that we've added, could be vitamins, it could be better nutrition, could be smoking cessation, whatever we have decided that's important in this case, we're continuing. Once again, these are not any miracle devices. We want to make sure that everything is addressed. And that's why we started this section with managing the overall patient. And with that, I wanna thank everyone and I would like to pass this on to our wonderful colleague, Dr. Augustine. She will be discussing the general surgery aspect of this session. Thank you very much, Dr. Gabriel. My name is Vedra Augenstein and I'm a general surgeon. I uh, did a fellowship in minimally invasive surgery at Carolinas Medical Center, which is where I currently work. Um, I do a lot of esophageal surgery. I do uh, lots of robotic surgery, laparoscopic, and then uh, I do a lot of hernia repairs. 
so these are just some examples of some of the more complicated hernias uh, that I've taken care of, and uh, we'll focus on some of these open hernias uh, for this presentation. So very often we see patients in the office who have a hernia who are sent to us uh, and uh, we're often asked, well, it's just a hernia, right? It should be very easy to fix. Uh, well, you can see from just these two pictures that these patients have very different hernias and certainly their outcomes and risks are also very, very different. But how do we actually predict complications? How, we, how do we actually talk to these patients preoperatively about the impact of their comorbidities and how do we encourage them uh, to change their outcomes by modifying some of these uh, preoperative comorbidities? Well, if you look at data from the American uh, College of Surgeons, uh, NISQIP database, uh, almost half a million patients, uh, which were from all specialties, this is plastics, orthopedics, general surgery, just about every specialty in vascular surgery, uh, they wanted to look at uh, which patients had the highest risk of being readmitted to the hospital, which would signify potentially that these patients were uh, more complicated type of procedures. And if you look at this data here, you can see that the lower extremity bypass patients, those vascular patients were number one, and then ventral hernia repair was actually uh, the number two most likely risk for getting readmitted to the hospital. Certainly, we know that at Carolinas, as we get to take care of a lot of these patients who have had previous hernia repairs and failed, uh, this is an app that was created at Carolinas Medical Center uh, based on our very own data, over a million data points, uh, 500 patients, as essentially uh, what we did is uh, we created a mathematical equation that predicts the risk of developing a wound complication after surgery. Uh, so if you look at uh, some of these um, uh, variables here, smoking increases the odd ratio, 2.17. Uh, diabetes, if your hemoglobin A1C is greater than 7.2. Previous hernia repair, you can see enterotomy, 2.65, and component separation, uh, 1.9. Uh, so all of these used in an app can be used in a patient like this when you see them in clinic. Uh, so she's a 49-year-old lady, BMI 37. She's had multiple ventral hernia repairs. She's diabetic, she's had a mesh excision, and is a smoker. So if you think um, about what her risk of developing a wound complication is postoperatively, and then if you use the app on her, you will see that she has a 65% risk of developing some kind of a wound complication, which is very, very high for somebody that doesn't even seem to have a very uh, complicated hernia from her picture. However, what's uh, really important to note on this app, which is completely freely downloadable off of iTunes, is that you can show the patient the impact that comorbidities make on her outcomes. So for example, if she were to quit smoking for four weeks prior to surgery, get her diabetes under control so that hemoglobin A1C is under 7.2 and loses about 25 pounds, her risk goes from 65% to 20%, which is a huge difference. Now, wound complications are very common in hernias. As you saw in that NISQIP database article, um, patients develop these wound complications after open repairs very frequently, anywhere from 20 to 60% of patients. And um, also what's important to note is that the most common risk factor for recurrence from a hernia repair is a patient who developed a wound complication. So certainly we have to do something about these patients to see what we can uh, do to actually uh, improve their overall outcomes. So for example, uh, this patient here, uh, you can see BMI 47, she's diabetic, previous ventral hernia repair, small bowel obstruction. Her risk of developing a wound complication is pretty high, 66%. So perhaps she's somebody that we can do minimally invasively or pick some other type of a therapy as I'm gonna discuss in the future here. The impact of wound complications on quality of life is also really important. Uh, we've evaluated this at length at our institution. So patients who actually have no complications, uh, they do better as far as pain is concerned, their activity limitation, and also they have less mesh sensation. And this is all um, clinically significant. 
and uh, statistically significant. Uh, also, what's important to know is the impact that wound complications have on our life as providers and surgeons. So uh, for a patient, we, uh, we tracked patients with wound complications in our office and those who did not. And if you look at uh, patients who did not have any wound complications, on average, we saw them about two to three times in a year. Those with wound complications, it was almost nine times per year. The office duration was really significantly different. 13 minutes for a well check versus 42 minutes for somebody who developed a complication. And then the number of phone calls you can see uh, to the nurse is uh, one per year versus almost seven per year. So all of these things are really important because if you think about how this affects your practice, this is essentially six hours of time taking care of just one patient with a wound complication. Just imagine how many cases you can do, how many new patients you can see if you just prevent one single wound complication. So I'm gonna show you some examples here and uh, what I have been doing uh, to prevent wound complications. So this is a patient here with a large ventral hernia. She's undergone a hiatal hernia repair and uh, then she was converted to open, had a redo. Um, so really big incision, all subxiphoid. If you see here on her CAT scan, you can see that a lot of her um, intestine and uh, is uh, out of her abdominal wall. So she has uh, not quite a loss of domain, but certainly it is a very sizable hernia in her abdominal wall. And she's very uncomfortable and wants to have this uh, fixed as soon as possible. So uh, preoperatively, I had her lose weight, uh, mandatory for her. I uh, told her to lose at least 20 pounds. She exceeded that a little bit and actually lost a little bit more than that. I also then did a transverse paniclectomy on her, uh, which helped um, uh, with mobilization of the anterior fascia. Uh, I placed her, um, actually took all of her peritoneum down, closed it, and then placed her mesh in this preperitoneal space, which is something that we routinely do uh, for patients um, in our operating rooms at Carolinas. This is a technique that really isolates the mesh from where the intestine is, and you'll see that in some of the videos. Um, and the nice thing is that she did not require any type of a component separation. Certainly, the skin mobilization uh, was helpful uh, with this uh, paniclectomy that uh, performed on her, but she also had uh, weight loss, which was very important to um, be able to close her anterior fascia there without any tension. This is just the closure of the skin. So I think what's really important at this point is that the closure of the skin is something where I feel like um, we need to pay a lot better attention to these patients now knowing uh, how what high risks uh, uh, as far as hernia recurrence and mesh infection uh, can occur if we uh, develop a wound complication. Uh, so in all of these patients, I essentially use a Provena. And uh, I measure it a lot, a lot of times. It's a customizable one, uh, but I use all different kinds of sizes. Um, and this is uh, what she looked like postoperatively. So you can see the difference from that picture on the left uh, to what her abdomen looks like in the one in the middle um, with the hernia fix, the weight loss. And uh, this is just the first visit. You can see that the incision is uh, very nicely healed uh, once the Provena was taken off. So uh, we like the Provena so much uh, in our practice uh, that we actually uh, wanted to look and see how our patients did um, and wanted to uh, look at how this uh, closed incision negative pressure therapy um, works with patients who are having a complex abdominal wall reconstruction and also concomitant paniculectomy. Now, anytime you combine these two procedures, uh, you often have a very large incision and, uh, and these patients that are at a high risk of developing a wound complication, but we know that there are data that show that um, if you remove the panis at the same time of the hernia repair, that'll actually long-term decrease the risk of uh, hernia recurrence. So um, in this data set, you can see there are um, many patients, uh, 692 patients, about 10% of them had uh, the Provena uh, BMI, you can see is average about 36. And uh, what we saw in the negative incision uh, therapy group is that we had a lower, lower surgical site infection, 15% versus 46%. So that's a huge difference. Lower rate of cellulitis, wound breakdown, and wound infection. And then also lower hernia recurrence, because we know how this data from wound complications correlates to recurrence. Um, so if you also propensity match it, you could see that there's also a significant difference uh, in the wound complications. And if you use our CEDAR app that I just showed you a little while ago, uh, for these patients, for these 67 patients in the Provena group, 
um, the calculated percentage estimate from CEDAR was 38.4%. Now CEDAR was developed before we had the Pravina and you can see that the actual rate was 15.4%. Uh, while CEDAR app did very accurately predict the infection rate um, in the other group uh, that did not have the Pravina. So certainly this data was eye-opening and it's exactly what I needed at my hospital uh, to show them that including this in some of these complex patients um, Although it adds a little bit more to the bill, uh, it certainly prevents these patients from developing more problems in the future. So it is something very important. So I'm going to show you a couple of patients. This is a really nice lady uh, that was sent to me that had a uh, bowel obstruction. You can see she has this very huge panis that comes almost to her ankles. Um, she has had this for about 10 years and was kind of bounced around the hospital system uh, until I was asked uh, by um, the in-house surgery team to see her. Um, and uh, this is what the rest of her panis uh, looks like. So I'm just going to show you a little video of her operation here. Uh, so I decided to uh, use uh, to suspend her panis essentially on some IV poles. This is not something that has been done at my hospital before, but I had seen it at surgical meetings. Uh, so I uh, did a little bit of research and figured out how to do this sterile to suspend the panis. Now, the really nice thing about this is that the patient essentially auto transfuses uh, as you're hanging this large uh, um, amount of skin and subcutaneous tissues um, up in the air. She had some very large vessels in her panis, uh, so I used this uh, ligature to carefully uh, get through uh, the subcutaneous tissue. You can see that on one side, I'm working on the other side, I have my fellow. Um, and once we get to the hernia sac, this is where you have to be particularly careful uh, with doing any kind of uh, cautery. Uh, so this is the panis uh, taken off. Um, everybody in the operating room was very excited to weigh it. Uh, they uh, about uh, 24 pounds. Um, but uh, this is what her bowel looks like. So you can see that she really had a true bowel obstruction and she was miserable with this, multiple NG tubes. The defect itself was actually fairly tiny. So this was more of an issue with her panis and uh, we decided to open it up a little bit because I wanted to place a really large mesh uh, once again into that prepared neospace. Measured again here, just to make sure that the skin and subcutaneous tissues would come together. And this is me uh, creating this uh, prepared meal flap. Um, so this is essentially, uh, we start down in the space of retius and mobilize the bladder all the way underneath the pubis. And then we'll use kitners. You can see the peritoneum is super thin, uh, but if you go very far out laterally, you can mobilize this peritoneum very nicely. And you can do that uh, along the length of the entire abdominal wall. Uh, this is my fellow uh, doing uh, this on his side and is essentially taking the peritoneum. It works really well if you uh, start laterally and bring uh, the peritoneum toward yourself medially. Um, sometimes the peritoneum is very thin and a lot of these patients have had previous operations, meshes, tacks. Uh, so it can be a little bit challenging, uh, but most of the time, if you get far enough laterally, essentially into the retro peritoneum, you're gonna be able to peel away a nice layer of peritoneum, uh, which can then be used to cover the intestine and separate your mesh uh, from um, the rest of the abdominal cavity and from the intestines. Um, so here, uh, my fellows uh, using the Kittner uh, is essentially pushing the posterior recta sheath um, back up and creating this. Now this pre-perineal release, um, it's not really a, uh, it's, it's a flap, it's not a um, uh, it's not something that's going to advance the midline fascia, so it's not a component separation, uh, but it is nice because uh, it's not burning any bridges just in case a, a person ends up needing to have a component separation. What it also does uh, is, as you'll see here, uh, eventually, so, so we usually place the omentum down uh, and then uh, take this peritoneum, and you can see that the peritoneum is very nice and lax. Um, and, uh, and then you can close it with an absorbable suture. This is not the strength layer of the abdomen, but you can see that the peritoneum is completely closed here. 
and her fascia is nice. We have a few, if you have make any holes in the perineum, you wanna go ahead and close those um, because as you can see here, uh, bowel can certainly um, get trapped underneath your mesh there. Uh, we place a large um, synthetic mesh in her. Uh, the case was completely clean and uh, knowing how large her abdomen is and high BMI, I really wanted to have something really strong inside. Um, so we'll place a few sutures. Uh, the benefit of this prepared meal release is that you really don't need a lot of sutures because the mesh is not gonna go anywhere. It's completely extra peritoneal. So intestine is completely out of the way. It's not gonna sneak around the mesh. Um, so essentially I, most of the time will place two sutures inferiorly, two sutures superiorly, and then one or two laterally, just kind of depending on how big the hernia is and, um, and how thin the abdominal wall looks. Uh, so once you close this, uh, this is a 30 by 35 centimeter piece of uh, synthetic coated mesh. Uh, and, um, you know, so we have a over a 15 centimeter overlap. Um, I will routinely do an expiral tap lock. Uh, I think uh, this is something that's uh, in the last few years really taken off in abdominal wall um, reconstruction. And it's very helpful as far as getting these patients um, on ERAS protocols and getting them out of the hospital sooner um, and uh, place a subfascial drain right on top of the mesh and then uh, close the fascia as you can see here. She has a little bit of laxity inferiorly um, and I just wanted to go ahead and uh, suture this down um, because I, I want to give her, um, you know, the pe best possible uh, looking abdomen at the end of this. Uh, so she's got a pretty large flap. I usually use about one drain, but uh, she definitely needed a couple. And uh, we irrigate her with some vast tracing irrigation. I usually use some type of a hemostatic agent in this flap and then close her uh, with multiple interrupted uh, dual monocles. Uh, and then I will usually just use a stapler to close the whole skin incision uh, and then place a Pravina at the end of that, uh, which will help uh, this lady. As you can see here, this is her post-opera. You can see she still has a lot of drains. She's still in the hospital here, um, but looks good. So I think in conclusion, uh, what we have to consider are all the tools that we have now. Uh, we have to be committed to the problem, uh, ask for help, optimize these patients preoperatively, consider paniculectomies, and also consider different wound and incisional management techniques. Um, because success is no accident in all of these patients, as I'm sure uh, as we're going to discuss on the panel uh, in a few minutes. So I um, appreciate everybody, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Augustine. That was um, amazing. Uh, and thank you, uh, Dr. Cooper, as well, for the presentations. And what the audience, uh, we're going to start with the question and answer session. And there's some questions that have already come in. And I want to just go straight to Dr. Augustine and ask, I'm just wondering, what do you do exactly to prepare your patients for surgery? Is there certain protocols that you're following? And Really, after that, I also want to use then, if you're following those protocols, who are the real candidates for Provena or negative pressure incisional device, and how do you convince the hospital uh, to carry it? Thank you so uh, much, Dr. Gabriel, and uh, excellent lectures to both of you guys as well. Uh, so uh, as far as uh, preparing the patients, you know, this is something that uh, we do in clinic uh, every day, uh, a lot of these patients who come, um, we've had several hernia repairs before who have failed. Um, you know, they come in and they, they expect, since they were referred to us, that somehow we have the magic wand and that we're just going to wave it and uh, their hernia will be fixed and they'll heal perfectly. Um, but the reality is that really a lot of them need to have quite a bit of uh, preoperative optimization. And uh, the app that I showed um, during the lecture, Cedar, um, which is freely downloadable from um, iTunes, basically looks at um, eight different um, questions, which are all statistically significant uh, things such as smoking, uh, hemoglobin A1C for diabetics greater than 7.2, um, and then weight loss prior to surgery. So really when I see these patients preoperatively, I'm talking to them at length about how important some of these things are and showing them actively on the app 
uh, you know, what it, uh, what it really means for them uh, if they go to surgery as they are right now versus optimizing uh, for a couple of months before surgery and how that can help them uh, down the road. So I think uh, just about everybody needs to be optimized when they come and see us. I mean, there are very few patients that are pretty much ready to book. Um, and I think that's probably uh, one of the keys to success. Uh, is that what you guys uh, find as well in your practices? At least for, my, for myself as well. I mean, there's pretty complex patients that I think overall management, remembering that we're treating the whole patient is important. And for those of you that haven't downloaded the app, Dr. Augustine told me about the app, I think two, three years ago. And I downloaded it. wasn't about three years ago. I started and then I, I use it. It's an amazing app. And, and Dr. Cooper, any thoughts? Great thoughts, and I, I think as you know, as surgeons and as specialists, we're we're going to have an increasingly large role in dealing with our patients' health than, than we're used to traditionally. I, I think that we have we're in a prime position to meet these patients before surgery. We often have a carrot that you know they, they need something from us, they want something from us, but um, in order to to optimize their health, they have to make changes, lifestyle changes, uh, health changes to to put themselves in a better position. And um, I think we're a little early to the game in orthopedics, um, but we're, we're starting to be incentivized financially um, by payers or, or disincentivized for not doing it. And um, it's being forced upon us uh, and, and it's going to become a, a bigger uh, part of what we do for good reason, because it really makes a huge difference in patient outcomes. Um, well, and, and that's something we regularly do for all patients. I mean, Dr. Cooper, you deal with very complex cases. I mean, revision, hip revision, knee, those are pretty complex uh, do you use the negative pressure device besides optimizing your patients? Do you use a negative pressure device for every single case? Yeah. So, so in, you know, in, I do both primary hip and knee replacements for most of what I do and probably 15% of my surgical cases are the revision cases, which are obviously much more complex surgically. Um, so I, I, I try to stratify patients into low risk and high risk patients when it comes to which dressing I'm using. I'd love to use Praveen on everybody. Um, it's probably not cost effective, uh, um, on, on low risk patients. When it comes to the revision, I, I talked about the, the um, risk stratification for primary patients um, uh, earlier, but for revision patients, um, they're already coming with a lot of risk. Uh, their risk of infection is, is five to 10 times higher. You're going through an incision that's been opened once or twice or three times before. Um, the stakes are also higher because if you fail a revision surgery and you get an infection, uh, that's a really difficult problem and a very expensive problem to treat. So, so I think the justification for using negative pressure is much higher in a, in a revision case. I use it probably 90% of the time. Uh, there's some cases like if the polyethylene liner from 25 years ago has worn out, the patient is now 85, but completely healthy and you're going through a new surgical incision. I, I treat that like a primary, but for most revision cases that I do, uh, I consider them quite high risk and use a Provena. And Dr. Augustine, I mean, you treat complex recurrent hernias. I mean, they're the disasters that are walking into your office that have failed other treatments. Um, besides using your app and optimizing them, I mean, are you using the negative pressure device on every patient? And do you think it's making a difference? Yeah, so it actually took a little while to get it even into my hospital because we, we didn't have it um, the first few years when I uh, started. And I was, um, I believed in the kind of the premise of like what we're doing with the negative uh, incisional therapy that I started uh, using a sponge and cutting it and make, making my own back, which, you know, then OR time, you know, it's going to take you 15 minutes to do that. And uh, in, in OR time money, that's, that's quite a bit. Uh, plus then you're using a regular vac, not, not the vac that Pravina comes with. So it's actually probably a lot more expensive and I did a cost analysis. Um, so it certainly we, um, you know, I have thought to have the Pravina in our hospital and I think showing them some of that data has made sense. I pretty much use it on just about any case. You know, I do a lot of robotic surgery. So those, those cases of tiny incisions are just about any other procedure where I'm opening the abdomen, I'm using the Provenon. Um, some of these meshes will cost $15,000. And, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent uh, from that um, skin incision getting infected because it, the number one predictor for a hernia recurrence and a mesh infection is going to be a wound infection. Uh, so I think anything we can do, it's, it's a really cheap price to pay. Uh, looking at just like long-term side effects of mesh infection and how horrible, you know, how, you know, salvaging those meshes is almost impossible. So, 
yeah, and those meshes are very complex to treat, and that also translates in our field of breast reconstruction when we're using ADMs, and say it costs anywhere from eleven to twenty thousand dollars. So you, you, we want to protect it, and I'm sure same goes to you, Dr. Cooper. When you're using the hardware, your your prosthetics, those are costly, and we want to protect it as much as we can. Um, that please. absolutely, and and. You ask a you ask a good question, Dr. Gabriel, about about getting Provena into your hospital. Did you have any difficulty uh, getting it in, or, or or getting indications for use, or are you restricted in in what kinds of patients uh, you can use it in? That's a great question because we're always running into challenges. What is how can we save money but yet produce advanced technologies to improve outcomes in our patients? And yes, initially we had some pushback because the question was how do we know this is going to give us the, the outcomes we desire. And just like Dr. Augustine said, the cost analysis is pretty impressive. All it takes is one complication take back to see what the cost is. And some of the case, case examples had to be pulled, analyzed by the VAC committee and for them to understand what actually a, a complication uh, would cost, especially when it goes to breast reconstruction. We started with breast reconstruction initially when we were dealing with the larger dressings. How about you guys? Did you, did you, Dr. Cooper, have any issues getting him in? Um, we we did initially, and uh, actually we didn't initially have trouble getting it in. Uh, it, it was easy to come in, but when when the utilization went from none to you know to quite to quite frequent very quickly upon coming in, uh, um, and and the budget uh, grew, um, I, I think more than expected. Uh, we got lots of questions about wait, what is this? Why are you using it? Um, is, is this necessary? Is there another way we can do this? And uh, one, of, one of the best things about being, um, you know, in the bundled pay, uh, payment systems where we are, we're in a, a, a model called a Comprehensive Center for Joint um, uh, uh, Reconstruction. It's a CJR model sponsored by uh, Medicare, where um, every single Medicare hip and knee replacement that we do, um, we get uh, fed back to us a 90 day spend for those patients. And we can easily see what a complication costs, not just to us, but also to the, you know, to the hospital. And um, we're being credited or, or debited based on whether we save money or, or spend more money than a, than a national benchmark. Um, and so having that data was really, really effective. We didn't have to do our own cost-effectiveness analysis. We could see what these things cost, uh, you know, in real dollars and where we, and how much money we were saving by decreasing our readmission rate uh, from 8%, I think down to, down to about 1%. Uh, 90 day readmission rate from before we started doing this to after we started doing this. Um, so really um, a pretty easy argument to make economically for us uh, because of the programs that we were in at the time. Yeah, well, that's impressive. And I think Dr. Augustine, you've done something very similar as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest, uh, most important things is really to collect data. And if you don't have a program that is collecting it for you and you like some product, I think it's really important to have the data behind that. Um, my hospital system, we have 45 different hospitals. It's a huge system. It's the second largest after the VA hospital system. So when you introduce something like Provena on the shelf, all of the hospitals get it. So as you can see, we're, it's a huge target for anybody wanting to introduce a product. So our committees are very complex. You know, you really have to show that there is value and very, you know, you could um, have a stapler or attacker that you really love and, you know, you just want to use it forever for the rest of your life. But if you don't have data and they find a cheaper product that you may hate, they're just going to take it. And they've done that many, many times, you know, over the last 10 years I've been there. Uh, so I think it, for Pravina uh, specifically, uh, you know, we do a lot of hernia repairs with paniculectomies and those are when combined, you know, the risk of having a wound infection, uh, it can be pretty high, you know, somewhere up to 30, 40% for some of these complex patients. Uh, and we just recently published a paper where using the Pravina, we dropped it down to about 12, 13%, uh, which is a huge difference. You know, you really uh, can show uh, in that percentage of patients that you're really saving the system a lot of money, you know, as far as, and then, and then you know, talk about the stability of patients who have wound complications who may take six months to heal from them. So, so I think overall, uh, it just, it makes a lot of sense, but uh, having your own data or having data in general uh, to make your argument, I think is the key. And I, and I think that's a big message is making sure that we're collecting data. It's absolutely, it's huge. And I do the same thing as breast reconstruction as well, follow that. And I mean, look at Dr. Cooper's uh, numbers, 8% to 1%, yours 30 to 40% to down to 12%. I mean, those are impressive numbers we're talking about. 
it's not a miracle product. I mean, we, we're going to still have unfortunate complications no matter what we use, but at least we're minimizing complications that are improving outcomes. The one question that has come up is, uh, is there any role of silver in the dressings that we're utilizing? So uh, Dr. Augustine, uh, you have previously talked about silver in the Provena and that's, uh, do you want to elaborate? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's a great product. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the fact that we can uh, place it on the skin and it's going to serve a process, you know, where, you know, you're not only uh, killing the bacteria, but you're also protecting the wound and all the other things that it does with it. I think it, it's really great. So, uh, but there are obviously a lot of other products uh, that are silver based. Um, and uh, I think uh, you have used, uh, you both have used some of those products. So, um, yeah. Maybe can comment on that. I was going to ask Dr. Cooper too, but it looks like we're running out of time. I just want to thank everybody for joining us and also for the audience. Please, after we're done, click on the claim your CE credit. Make sure you do that so you can actually get credit for today's discussion. And I just want to thank our co panels, Dr. Cooper and Augustine, for the wonderful presentations and also Nakmi for the amazing preparation they've done. Thank you very much and enjoy your weekend. Thank you. Bye, everybody.